So we are going to continue our Gospel Foundation series today. <clears throat> We're moving into chapter 2 of the book of John. So I'm going to invite you to open up to John chapter 2. And then before I jump into that, I just want to um, acknowledge what today is on the kind of the church calendar. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. Um, feels kind of early this year, but um, that's the way the moon cycle is. That's how John chapter two. Yep. So this is the first Sunday of Lent. Easter is six weeks away. It's going to be March thirty first. Make sure that's on your calendar, just if it's not already. March thirty first is our Easter celebration, and we are going to be having a special celebration the week before as well on Palm Sunday, because you may remember we have a church youth group coming from Indiana to join us that Sunday, working on plans for what that will look like, um, and having conversation about whether they'd like to provide some music for us, whether they want to do any kind of special drama or presentation. We haven't figured that out yet, but they're going to be here spending time with us that Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then we're looking at a community service project either here at the church or in the community, on that Monday. So they're going to be here Sunday, Monday, and then they've got other things that they're, they're doing throughout the week. So um, we're still working on the details of that, but that's coming up um, the week before Easter. So be praying about all that, right, that God will bring his plans together and that he'll be glorified in all that. And also just to remember that um, Lent, the season of preparation for Easter, is traditionally a time that we mark as Christians with, a, with fasting, giving something up in our lives. You know, usually the, the most effective kind of fasts isn't that you, you just do the tradition, right? I'm going to stop eating candy. If you're a Catholic, you never eat meat on Fridays, right? All the things that everyone does that are all the traditions. I want to get past all that and focus on this is what fasting does for us spiritually. It's a way to help us grow, a way to get past obstacles in our life that keep us from being close to the Lord. You have something that you desire habitually. And whether it's good for you or not, right, it could be something that's not terrible for you, but it's something that you turn to over and over again. And you say, you know what, I'd like to give this up for a period of time and instead replace what I, the effort and the time that I'd put into that with a time of devotion to the Lord. And when I really feel that craving creeping in, instead of just giving in to the thing that I always do every time, and this time I'm going to turn to the Lord, and I'm going to ask him for strength and help and perseverance. Fasting can be a really powerful and effective way of breaking through obstacles in your life and learning a deeper trust and a deeper fellowship with the Lord. So I want to encourage you to use this time to do just that that this period of preparation between now and Easter could be a really powerful time in your life to draw close to the Lord. Think about what you might give up, how you might humble yourself before the Lord in, in a, in a uh, practical way and fast something in order to draw closer to the Lord. Um, as I was looking through our announcements on our website, I saw that we still have a fasting, a guide to prayer and fasting that I had put up last year. So if you go to the announcements link on our website, you'll find that there as well if you'd like to dig into that a little bit more. But make good use of this time to draw close to the Lord and you renew your commitment to him. So 
Now let's go back to John. I think after today, I'm going to pause our Gospel Foundation series and start focusing on Easter as well, preparation for Easter. So we'll go through Lent and Easter, and then we'll come back to this. But today we're going to take a look at the beginning of John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 together. And um, this is a good one for a volunteer to come up and read for us to help set this up. So if anyone would like to read John chapter 2, actually verses 1 through 11. Um, I would love to put that opportunity out to the rest of you. A volunteer? Becky, you're volunteering? You got it. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm just checking to see which has larger print. (laughs) In the, that's one, chapter two. On the third day, a wedding took place at at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they've got no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each of them holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them with, to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw, out, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This is one of those passages that's really easy to read through quickly and say, oh, that's cool. Jesus performed this miracle. John says this is the first of the miracles that he performed in Cana. Um, As you read through the rest of the gospel, as you read through the rest of them, we know that Jesus performed all kinds of miraculous signs, healing people, um, Casting out demons, he everything he did was about drawing people into the to the kingdom and teaching them about that. And I think it's significant what it says at the end that Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This was one of those early moments in Jesus' ministry where he had not yet revealed himself to the world. And this was right after he called his disciples, and they they were trusting that he was this person that John the Baptist said he was, the Messiah. The Savior. And now they saw him perform this miracle, and I'm sure it built their faith. 
But this this passage is also a rare glimpse we get of Jesus in a more personal kind of setting, where he's not teaching crowds of people and performing signs and telling that he's just being a person. He's invited to a wedding along with his mother and his friends. And there's a key part of this passage that I want to draw our attention to today. It's his interaction with his mom. And you really have to wonder, I do, when I read this, I'm like, what was it like for Mary to raise Jesus? This is one of these that I really wish we had access to that part of his life. What was it like for Mary to be the mom to Jesus? She seems to have some experience with Jesus' miraculous abilities. She, she knows that he can solve this problem. They've run out of wine. Jesus, you can do something about this. So how does she know that? Does she know it just because of, of the whole fact that this is, he, she knows that he is the son of God, that you know, she conceived of him miraculously and she just knows that he has this ability? Or has he shown her some glimpses throughout his childhood, right? Have there been moments in Jesus' younger ages where she saw there's, that he can do these miraculous things? <laughs> Maybe they ran out of wine at home, right? We don't know. And regardless of, of what the answer to that is, somehow Mary was confident Jesus could help save this wedding. So she comes to him and says, um, what did she say? They've run out of wine, right? She comes to him and says they have no more wine. And Jesus like, says, dear woman, why do you involve me in this? My time has not yet come, right? He's pointing out to this woman, it is not his time to step out publicly yet. This is not the time to reveal himself as the son of God and all the things that we read afterward. This is too soon. The way John writes this, she doesn't even seem to pay attention to that. She just turns to the servant and says, just do whatever he says. Right? You can picture that situation, right? She's like, come on. <laughs> right? <laughs> Jesus, come on. She has confidence that he's going to do this, Right? And I, you know, again, you wonder what the personal interaction, you don't, that doesn't come through in the writing. What was it like between those two? Was he smiling when he, when he pushed back? Did she just know? But somehow, she knows. She's, she knew Jesus' character, perhaps better than anyone, right? She's been his mother, caring for him for some 30 years now. She knows the kind of person he is. And she knows that he is the Son of God. Jesus has the power and authority to set his own agenda, though. He is, as John has revealed to us, the king of kings. He is the creator of all things. Here, the creator of all life is at a wedding being asked to save the wedding hosts from embarrassment, give them some wine. Jesus doesn't have to do anything about this. Jesus can tell everyone around him what they ought to be doing. He has the authority he has every right to take charge and have his disciples serve him and his needs. Yet here he is submitting to the desire of this woman, his mother, and serving the desires of people holding a family celebration. And not only that, richly blessing them, right? The, the wedding host says, you've brought out the best wine at the end now. Jesus didn't give them just some wine. He gave them the best and richly bless them. And there's a lesson in here, I think, about God's character. Jesus did not come to serve his own purposes. He came to serve people. 
Jesus is for mankind to such an extent that he will fulfill the request of someone even if that request is not part of his plan. Now, we know that Jesus is not going to do anything sinful. He's not going to do anything that ultimately affects negatively God's plans and the way that he lives his life, but he's willing to do what somebody has asked him to do. It's crazy to think about that, to think that Jesus can be influenced by people. That somebody can have their idea of what they want and ask Jesus for it, and he'll say, sure, why not? This isn't the only time in Scripture we see God changing his mind at the request of a human being, is it? Are you familiar with some other places in Scripture where you see that? The earliest one I can think of was in Genesis chapter 18. Yeah, with Lot. And Abraham, yes. So if we turn to Genesis 18... The story, the back story behind this is that Abram has been chosen by God. He's made this covenant agreement with Abram. Abram is going to be the father of a great nation. Um, by this time, he has moved away from his homeland. Um, he has this nephew named Lot who travels with him for some time, but Lot settles in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Or in, in Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah are two cities that are just filled with sin. They're just terrible things happening in these places. And God has determined that these cities, the people in these cities need to be judged for their sin. And he's going to rain down fire on these cities. And Abram is given a glimpse, and he's talking with an angel of the Lord before all this happens in Genesis 18. Verses, starting in verse 22, the men were angels that, that, that Adam or Abram were talking with. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Let me just pause and just, you've heard sentiments like that before, haven't you? Maybe even felt it yourself. Really, God, are you going to judge everyone in this earth? Aren't you going to spare the, right people, uh, the, the people who are living righteous lives? Are you really, aren't you a good God? Abraham is expressing that to the Lord. Really, God, are you going to wipe out these cities even if there are 50 righteous people in it? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their, for their sake. But then Abraham spoke up again and says, now that, I, that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the city because of, of five people? If I find 45 people there, he said, I will not destroy it. And once again, Abraham spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And Abraham takes him down to 30 and then 20. 
And then he says, be not angry with me, Lord. Let me speak just once more. What if there are only 10 found there? For the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham. He left and Abraham returned home. It's a very interesting interaction. God has already passed judgment on these cities. He has already determined what he's going to do. And here Abraham is saying, are you sure, Lord? Won't you save it for the sake of this many people? And, and God's response isn't, I've already investigated Abraham and there are no righteous people there. Forget it. But he says, if I find even 10 righteous people, I will spare the city. And there seems to be this influence that Abraham has. There's other passages. Exodus chapter 32. Um, this is... Uh, much later, now the, the, the nation of Israel has grown. They've been in captivity in Egypt for many decades. We know the story of Moses being sent by God to rescue the people, leading them out of slavery. They've been coming to the desert. Moses has gone up to the mountain to talk to the Lord because the people are too afraid to be around the Lord, so they sent Moses up by himself. While Moses is up on the mountain, the people down below are thinking, this is taking way too long. What happened to Moses? And they pressure Moses' um, brother Aaron into making a calf idol, and they're going to worship this idol instead. Well, and guess what God wants to do to the people now? Forget them. They've been complaining from a the moment they left. They said they wanted rescue, and as soon as God rescues them, they, start, they just start complaining. And now they're worshiping another god? Oh, yeah, the gold. Yeah, the gold. Right, that gold was meant for the temple that they were going to build to the Lord. So Exodus 32, verse 9. <clears throat> the Lord says to Moses, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you, a, you Moses, into a great nation. So he's going to still fulfill his promise to Abraham, but it's just going to be through Moses now. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off of the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster to your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented. It did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. It's just so interesting to me when I read those things that some human being went before the creator of all things and says, are you sure you want to do that? Won't you change your mind? And the Lord says, okay, I relent. I won't do what I said I was going to do. And this kind of passage, well, there's a couple others. Um, Jonah, the entire book of Jonah you read about this man, Jonah, that God called. He said, go to the people of Nineveh. These are non-Israelite people. 
people who are living in sin, doing all kinds of terrible things, he says, go preach to them, tell them that if they don't repent from their ways, I'm going to destroy them. And you know what Jonah says from the start? No. Because I know what you're going to do, Lord. I know that if I go and speak to these people and they turn around and they actually get their lives right with you, you're going to be kind to them. That's basically Jonah's complaint. He says, Lord, you're going to send me all the way there and then you're, going to, you're not going to follow through on your plan. You're going to... Yeah, right? Make me a liar, right? Jonah was supposed to sound himself. You're gonna And that's what the whole story of Jonah and the whale is all Jonah was trying to escape the Lord and finally he gives in and then he goes and preaches to the people and the preach realize they're sinful and they turn to the Lord and Jonah's like, Yep. And he's grumpy and angry for the rest of the book because the Lord was kind to these and compassionate. Right? Jonah is such an interesting character. But, the, but you see how God responded to the people. In John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you. What's the next piece? Does anyone know this passage? If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. We have this invitation from the Lord to ask for what we want. And if what we want is within within alignment of his will, right? it's not sinful, it's not out of the bounds of what God wants for the world and is planning to do, not hurting someone else, right? There is that, that caveat to it. Remain in me and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. Like, really? We have influence with the Lord? There's something powerful in that. Now, these passages often lead us to having all these debates and questions about God. And does he really know the future? Is he really all-knowing? Are there things he doesn't know? Right? And every one of these passages, I've had conversations with the people about, well, God really knew already what was going to happen. He just allowed us to have this conversation. I'm like, everything I see in Scripture says, no, we actually have influence with the Lord. I don't completely understand it. There's ways that I can make sense of it in my mind. As I said, it's within the realm of what God was already planning to do. But the point here. I think the question that we ought not be asking is is not so much what does God really know, does he really change his mind, is do we understand God's character? And it seems to me as, as crazy as, a, as Jonah was, right, he understood God's character very well. He knows God to be gracious and compassionate. He knows that God will pardon. He will withhold judgment for the sake of people who turn away from sin. He knows that God will be influenced by our response to him. The point in all this is God is for mankind. He always has been. Go back to Genesis after the fall when Adam and Eve break God's command and... um, eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they have... and God 
reveals to them how they're going to be cursed. The land is going to be cursed because of them. There's going to be a curse upon them. They can no longer live in the garden. But what does God do at the end of that? Go back to go to Genesis 3, chapter 21. Find Genesis 3, 21, and tell me what the Lord did for Adam and Eve. He's about to send them out away from the protection of the Garden of Eden into this harsh world that now exists because sin has been welcomed in. <clears throat> and what does God do? He clothed them. He made the clothes and dressed them, yes. Right. Think about that. Yeah, they had no idea what clothes were up to that point. <laughs> yeah, Willow. Were you going to say something? Oh, you're stretched. Just stretching. That's all right. Yeah. And this, that passage has always been so remarkable to me. After the sin that Adam and Eve did, after you read about this curse that's coming upon them, God didn't just walk away and say, forget it. You know, I made a mistake. He clothed them. He made them clothes and clothed them before sending them out into the world. And we know that he never actually left them completely. God, they still had interaction with him. Just things were changed. There were consequences what they did, but God was for them even after they sinned against him. Much later in history, we you know, a big part of the Old Testament is about the, the interactions of Israel with God and how they were often rebelling against him and worshiping other gods, and so God eventually sent them into exile for the refusal to give up idol worship and all the sinful activities that go with it. He was going to send them away for... They, they had done this for generations, and God was allowing a foreign invader to come in and take them away. And yet, even before that happened, he told them, you will return. This is going to happen for a time to discipline you, but then I'm going to bring you back to the land. God was for them that whole time. It wasn't just that he was fed up with them and said, forget you, I'm sending you off into exile. No, he said, this, this is a period of discipline for you. And then I will return you to your home. God was for them. It really makes you think about all of God's commands and the way that we view them. We often view all that God commands us as a list of rules that we must follow. If we're going to live the right life, if we're going to obey God and have his favor, we need to do what God asked us to do. And we look around the world and say, yep, the world's a mess because everybody's sin, and of course God's not blessing it. We, we, we put God in that place of being the judge and the one who's making our lives difficult because of our failure, right? We deserve to be treated the way we are because we're sinful, awful people. No wonder God is against us. It's not the character that the, that the Bible presents about God at all. We miss the fact that God's law is a gift to us, a foundation to build on for a fulfilling life. And we, we know this to be true. We live in this age of scientific study and knowledge. We, we document and study things. There's been all kinds of studies done on what provides people with 
with a fulfilling, satisfying, stable kind of life. And study after study shows that the, 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 the behaviors that lead to the best life are those that are in alignment with God's law. Now, the, the researchers may not say it that way, but, but all the things that cause human flourishing are the things that God commanded for us. God's law is there to give us a fulfilling life. It's a gift for us. And that's why the psalmist declares such great things about how sweet God's law is, how wonderful his commands are. They are what's best for us because God is for us. Jesus pointed this out in um, an interaction he had with the Pharisees. If you turn to another passage, Mark chapter 2. We'll see another moment where Jesus just reveals how God is for us. Uh, Mark chapter 2. We're going to... I'm sorry, did I write this down wrong? Mark 2, 23. Uh, Oh, yeah, no, I'm in the right place, sorry. (laughs) Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 23. says that one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look! Why are they doing that? What is unlawful on the Sabbath? So the Sabbath day was a day of rest, and they were not supposed to do anything, not even pick a head of grain and eat it. That's breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. In all my years as being a Christian, I was taught, you know, keep holy the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. You're disobeying the Lord if you're not taking a Sabbath once a week. And there's all these rules. And the, and the Israelites, the, the Pharisees, man, had all kinds of rules that you had to follow. I was talking to someone yesterday about a friend of theirs who had become an Orthodox Jew. And they were talking about keeping the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, they could not even go into a room and turn off a light that had been left on the night before. Is that what God intended? Is that the kind of God we have? But that's often how we view God. Like, oh no, I better not break the rule, otherwise God's going to be upset with us. Oh, the way they got the lights off is they would go to their neighbor who was not an Orthodox Jew and invite the neighbor to come in and flip the switch. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah. Right, and that's, that's the point, right? We, we do all these things, at least I'm okay with the Lord. But the point is that Jesus made clear the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath is a gift to you. Did you know that? That God commanded us to take one day a week as a day of rest, not as a 
a rule that you must use to, to devote to him, but it's a gift to you. And there are so many benefits, health benefits. Um, well, I just say health benefits. So many health benefits that occur to you from taking a day of rest, right? And there's spiritual benefits that come from us. The point I'm dreading at again and again is God is for us. One last Bible passage that I'm reminded of as I think through this, Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. And this is a favorite passage of mine. I've come back to so many times. Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Um, I'll just stop right there. The, the, The key part of this is that God works for the good of those who love him. And that is such a profound statement that God, the creator, the king of kings, the authority over all things, the one who could command us to live how he wants us to live and to fulfill his desire, he has the authority and he has the power to back up that authority. God works for your good. If you're someone who loves him, and you draw close to him and you seek his will, you can know that God is for you. That he loves you and and he will do things for your sake. And so what is the takeaway from this today? I think the first thing is to ask, how do you view God? Do you view him as that ruler, that authority? Do you think that God's mad at you every time that you mess up? Do you think that he's making your life difficult? Um, It occurred to me this morning that I think some people's view of God, some Christians' view of God, is that he's kind of a mischief maker, that he makes our life difficult. He's the reason that I'm having bad luck or I'm a bad time because, well, I did all these things. I don't follow his way. I don't obey his commands. So he's going to put obstacles in my path and make my life hard. Now, there is a truth that God disciplines those he loves, Right? And as I'm saying these things, let's not forget the bigger picture. There is, there's a lot of things for us to consider. God does discipline, but he is for us. He doesn't hold out on us. He doesn't make our life difficult. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't sit in judgment and say, you terrible person. He sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. That is the greatest act of love that you can imagine. This is an act that says, I am for you. I am going to go out of my way to give you a way to be back into my good graces, to to get you to restore, to uh, remove the obstacles that keep you away from me. I'm going to offer you a, a, a pardon for your sin by having my son make payment for you so that we can have fellowship again and we can grow together. That says that God is for you. 
Can we understand that in our daily interactions with the Lord, that he is for you? That whatever you might be going through might not be directly related to what he's doing. He doesn't do things to you. He does things for you. He wants what's best for you. It may not always be easy. And there is sinfulness in our world. And we can talk about this for a while. This is, I'm, I'm making a simple statement about a complex situation. But the truth is, God is for you. Can we view him in that way? And then the other question that follows is, how do we present God to others? Do we allow them to think that God is against them, that he's out to get them, if they don't perfectly follow his way? I have not yet run across a person who's out there purposely singing against the Lord. There are choices that they are making, and they are not making them in alignment with the truth of who God is and what he wants for their life. They have had, some of them have had situations in life that are very difficult. They felt alone. They're making those choices. Some of them are just, they are being kind of rebellious and self-centered and making those choices, but not because they want to hurt the Lord, not because they think that it doesn't, that they want to hurt other people. We've got to go deeper with people. But are we presenting to them a God that's out to get them? A God that wants to send them to hell? Or are we presenting to them a God who is for them? Who wants the best for them? And that best might involve living a different life than they're currently living. But God wants to be there with them. And he wants to help them get there. That's who he is. It's what the Bible reveals to us. And if we remain in him... And his word remains in us. We can ask for whatever we want and know that he will provide it. So let's remember today who this God is that we worship, that he is for us, that he will do what's good for us. And we need not worry. Did you want to add something real quick? Yeah. How are they supposed to rehabilitate if they haven't been given the opportunity to change, right? Yeah, right. You can't you can't overcome go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, you can't rehabilitate if you haven't had the ability. Right. And we know that God can help rehabilitate any person from anything they're, they're, they're um, experiencing. He can heal anything, but we have to, he has to be given the opportunity to work in their lives. And as, as his representatives, we have to be presenting that opportunity. People may not know. And if we put up the blockade right away that God just wants to judge you, then they won't even get there. So yeah, there's a lot to think about in this. There's a lot of follow-up. And as I said, there's a bigger picture, but if we could recognize how much God is for us, I think that could change a lot in how we interact with him. 
So let's pray and give thanks for who God is and how he works in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this incredible truth that you actually respond to us and to our desires and need. I thank you so much that you love us so much that you would be willing to do what we ask and what we desire, Lord. That's such a profound truth. I pray that you would continue to work in each of us, in our hearts and minds, to help us to truly know you and who you are, to understand how much you go out of your way for us, for our sake. We know, Lord, that you want the best for us, and, we, and that is why we so willingly love you and submit our lives to you, Lord. We want, we want to want what you want, Lord. We pray that you help us to do that, Help us to seek your will and your desire, Lord. Help us to truly know you and to present you well to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.